Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Today's guest is John Willisey, and John is well known in the fast sea kayaking community. He holds numerous speed records as well as being the only person to have circumnavigated the UK both counterclockwise and clockwise. And today we're going to talk to John about the paddling playground that is Anglesey and get his take on going around islands or across water very quickly. So enjoy today's episode with John Willisey. Hi, John. Thank you for joining us on Paddling the Blue. Hello there. Good to hear from you. I appreciate the, uh, you taking the time out of your schedule to talk to us a little bit about your experience in uh, in the UK. So tell us, uh, let's start with by telling us a little bit of how you got your start as a paddler. Um, well, it goes back quite a long way now. Um, probably where I would really say I started would be as a child, as a very young child, young boy, I just had this fascination for water. And I was always getting into trouble, falling into water, into streams and rivers and things. And we lived out in the country and the house we lived in was surrounded by fields. Um, and in the winter, those fields flooded. And I had a little rubber dinghy and I used to blow it up and drag it across the fields. It was not, wasn't big enough to carry it. And then float around on this water and I just had this endless fascination for it. And then I would say, like a lot of young boys, I joined the Scouts or I was made to join the Scouts, get me out of the house, I suppose. And they obviously have a thing with outdoor sports and so on. And when I was 16, a man from the local canoe club came down to the scouts one night and said, we're having a, a come and try it event at the canoe club, you know, come, do you want to come down and have a look around? So myself and a few friends went to the canoe club and I'd never seen anything like it. There were all these different canoes and kayaks, all these different boats, all different shapes and the all different jobs and roles. And there was a, a guy there who became a friend of mine and he had a canoe slalom or a kayak slalom boat and he could throw it around and he could put the end of the boat under the water and he could turn on the spot and he could lift the bow into the air and I was just amazed by all of that and I just wanted, I was hooked, I wanted to be part of it. Um, so they stuck me in a boat and like everybody else I fell out of it about 20 times in the first half hour and <laughs> went home and told my mum that's what I want to be, I want to go canoe. So that's where it went really. I think a few years later I, I joined the Royal Air Force and they had a, a really strong canoeing scene at the time. And there were a lot of top-level national racing guys in there and girls. And we used to travel around the country going to all sorts of races. And the Air Force encouraged that at the time because I think it was good public relations for them and a good recruitment sort of thing to show these young people enjoying themselves. Come and join the Air Force and you, know, you could have as much fun sort of thing. And But I was really lucky. There was such a strong core of racing guys. They didn't mess about. You know, trained hard. You expected to train hard. And I learned so much from them. And... As I got better, I got dragged into doing different disciplines, and I think that was a real making for me. started out as a canoe slalomist. I got involved in whitewater racing, descent racing. As part of my training was on the flat, so I also then got dragged into flatwater racing. We did a little bit of polo and surf. We went off to expeditions in Norway and places like that. And there was just this whole picture of paddling from all different angles. And I really got dragged into that and, and sort of drawn along. I started out right at the very bottom and worked my way up through it. And, um, I think I remember in whatever it was, 1986 or something, I was, there were five divisions in the country for racing and I was in the very bottom division and I was number 747. And there were only 750 in there, so I was third from bottom in the whole country. You know, we couldn't get any lower. 
and then I race paddled through the Air Force with my friends and this group of people and within a few years I won a national championship and for a little boy from the north of England who used to float around on the fields in his little dinghy I was now a, a national champion and that was just something I never dreamt of. No. So um, so third from the bottom out of 750? In the bottom division. <laughs> in the bottom division even? <laughs> yeah, there were five divisions at the time. So, you know, there was three guys in the whole country behind me when I started out. Oh, that's how low it was. And I worked my way up. And it took a few years, but I got there to the top. And then after a national championship, you, you know, it was higher than I'd ever dreamt of I would ever do. I never thought I'd get that far. But then you reset your goals. So it was just, I wanted one championship, then you want a different championship. And then you get invited to join the British team. You apply for selection, you take the selection event. I was lucky enough to get selected. And then you, you lift your goals rather than just national level racing. You're now racing at world championships and world cup level. This was all just a big whirlwind for me, really. I started in the mid-80s, early 80s, and then all through the 90s, I was racing as a British team paddler and going to foreign lands, you know, in Europe and whatever, and racing world races and with this strong core of friends around me. And what else could you ask for as a paddler? It's just fantastic. And I'd always had this fascination of water and I'd taken it through. I was learning as I went, was going to see different rivers, different parts of the world, paddling different boats and different classes and Canadian and kayak, slalom and river racing and flat water. And yeah, that's where it went from really. So what was your, what's your favorite discipline? Nowadays, it's obviously the sea kayaking, the performance sea kayaking, but I started out as a slalomist and I still have a, a soft spot for slalom because I think as a good slalomist, you know more about boat handling and, and the water, moving water. You know, it's a, it is a whitewater event. So yeah. you know more about that than perhaps the other disciplines would bring to you. And I have to be careful what I say there, that would upset some people. But, <laughs> you know, I look back at my background and I've had slalom, river racing, both of those at an elite level and, and flat water racing at, a, you know, a, a low to national level, a medium national sort of thing. But I still yeah. look back at slalom taught me more Slalom taught me the foundation that the other disciplines were later built upon, I would say. It taught me boat handling. So. Yeah, once you can make a boat dance, then uh, then it's learning the rest of it. Yeah, that, exactly that. You can build upon that. Um, so there, there's there's something uh, about, I guess, the UK and, uh, and rubber dinghies, because uh, <laughs> I had an interview, uh, an earlier interview with Jeff Allen, and his first experience was in a, a pink inflatable crocodile, and yours being a rubber dinghy <laughs> in your backyard. Yeah, I used to. <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember when I was at primary school, I had a friend there, and we both had these little rubber dinghies. We used to play in the winter in them. It's all rather strange. I'm surprised that we were allowed to do that. It didn't come to any harm, whatever. But he decided he wanted to buy a, a kayak at the time, and I talked him out of it to stay with these rubber dinghies. And I wish if only we'd have done that, you know, the world could have moved on even further. But <laughs> that's one of my, my earliest regrets as a primary school child. Could have been a whole different category, a whole different it discipline of racing. It's, it's all worked out very well in the so how do you how do you go from slalom racing uh, to now uh, speed and endurance paddling? Yeah, I think um, like I say, the Air Force, not so much the Royal Air Force itself, but this core of paddlers in the Air Force really taught me a huge amount about racing and training and how to get fit and how to handle the boat and just how to apply yourself to this and, and to understand it and to analyze it all. But it was all in land racing, and then unfortunately, part of my I, I, that was just a sideline as such in the, in the Air Force. I did have a full-time job. I was a, an aircraft engineer, and I worked on avionic systems, so navigation, radar, radios, and what would now be GPS systems, 
locator beacons, homers, all these sort of things. And part of that job meant you had to move around the country to different places, and they decided they would send me to an island called Anglesey, North Wales, and I would work on the search and rescue helicopters there. And that's when my paddling world changed a little bit, really, because there's no major rivers on Anglesey, and there's a, a whitewater paddler trying to race at a national level. You've got to do a certain amount of training, and I couldn't really fit that in. But as I lived on an island, then, you know, I decided, well, it's, you're going to have to do something. It's time to reinvent yourself as such. And at the same time, you notice on Anglesey, there's a very strong core of some very high-level sea characters. There's a great community there, and there's a few manufacturers there. There's plenty of coaching there. There's plenty of people travel from long distances to come to Anglesey. It's got tide races and fast tides, scenery and all the rest. And I just decided I might as well join this scene as such. So uh, I spent a few years taking my paddling skills, my boat handling skills, and putting them onto the sea and learning how to paddle longer distances, how to plan trips, how to understand the tides, how to do rescues and all the various sea kayaking skills and drills you need. And I did that for a few years and I really enjoyed it, got interested in it. I, was, I guess I was learning new things and the racing had quite a long time, so it was nice to start again at the beginning. And then one day somebody gave me a, a guidebook to Anglesey and I looked in the back of this guidebook and there was a little section about paddling around the island itself and this how this was like a local challenge amongst the local paddlers. And the island's about 70 miles, 63 nautical miles to paddle around. It takes about 11, 12 hours, plus or minus, depending on how fast you paddle. And to do that, the tide changes in, in this part of the world every six hours or so. So to get around in 11 hours, you need to be able to plan the tide and take the parts of the island where the tide's fast in your favour and where the tide's slow, work that, use that when you need to paddle against the tide. So, so this whole planning thing tied into my early fascination for the water, but now I'm taking it onto a larger level. And once I actually read this guidebook, thought about my racing side of things, how to train, then looking at what I'd learned in the new sea kayaking skills and what I was really interested in was the, you know, researching the tides and such and putting it all together to try and test it around this island. And that's what I did. I went out to try and paddle around the island. And, um, to be frank, between you and me, don't tell anybody, but I screwed it up royally on the first one. Um, <laughs> I didn't even get halfway around. I got the title wrong. So I went away, researched, took some, um, rethought my plan, found out where I'd gone wrong, and I went back later in the year and did it, and I got around in one go, and I set a new record. I think at that time I realized my paddling had just moved to a different area and perhaps a different level as well. And that's what, that was the start for me of what later became the performance sea kayaking and chasing the records and driving around the, the country and parts of the world to try and do these things. So you say it's uh, about 11 hours around Anglesey? Yeah, it depends who you are. The record stands at under nine and a half. Um, some people do it multi-day. They take a tent, camp and make it three or five days or whatever and why not? You know, it's plenty of nice scenery, nice beaches, and so on. Yeah, but yeah if you want to, it has this certain thing because of the, the way the tides work. Um, like I say, it's 70 miles. You can't do it all on one tide, it's not possible. So you have to take a hit somewhere. And that's where the planning then comes in to try and find which are the best part, the fastest parts, the most assistance, and using those in your favor. But you'll never get around with tidal assistance all the way. So then you have to plan it that when it's against you, you take slower parts of the flow around the island different island parts of the island have different speeds of tide as such and that's where it then becomes almost like a game of chess against against the tide 
trying to factor out where to start, what time to start, how fast you've got to paddle to match the tide and to beat the tide to get all the way around. And that's what I, people think it's all really about just going out and paddling hard. It isn't. It's all about getting the plan right and then matching your plan. And I find that really fascinating. That's, that's what really does it for me as such. Oh, there's certainly a whole lot of strategy into that. And that's one of the reasons that I was thinking about that. As you said, if the uh, you know, if the average time is around 11 hours, well, you, in fact, hold the record at 924. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's somewhere around there, isn't it? Nine and a half this year. I don't, okay. Yeah, I, I don't have it sort of tattooed on my forehead <laughs> or something, but yeah. Um, so, but it's taken me a number of years to get to that. You know, the first time I went round, well, I think I did it 11 and a half hours. And then each time we've we've gone round, I, I keep notes about it. I, I then analyze where I could have gone better, where I got it not sort of suboptimum such, and then I go back and try again later. I think the first time I did it was 2005, and then I think the fastest time I did it was, um, I'm not sure actually, when was that? Uh, so I'm 2014. looking at... 2014, yeah, 2014. Yeah. So it took me nine years to get, <laughs> to shave a couple of hours off it. I just find it very interesting, and you know, one thing we learned, I paddled this around Anglesey, and then you realize when you look around the UK, Anglesey isn't the only one. The UK has got hundreds of islands but it has got a good core of islands which seem to have been almost designed it seems to be designed by mother nature or some great being whatever way you want to look at it for the circumnavigator of mind they're all tidal and there's the isle of Wight, the isle of man anglesey isle of Arran, butte jura and so on there's many more in scotland and these are all tidal and they're all possible in a day but none of them are easy in a day got to really analyze and research the tides and find out about them and plan them and if you don't get your planning right you will not get round the tide will stop you and if you get your tide right and you paddle reasonably you know re- manage the distance and paddle reasonably fast flight you'll get a good time and possibly a record out so you, like i said you hold quite a few uh, crossing and circumnavigation records uh, anglesey being just one of the many so what's your most memorable <laughs> um I'd hate to say it, but Anglesey would be the, the top of the list. In All right. Because um, it's just the pet one. I've done it sort of eight or nine times, nine, nine times. And it's just an old friend. And Anglesey is great because it isn't just one kind of paddling. It has very fast water along the, the north coast, which is about five knots or so in the middle of the tide. And even on the calmest day, there's always plenty going on there. There's waves and boils and swirls, and it's quite hard work. Then you've got a bit of a crossing, then you've got some, uh, the large cliffs at, at South Stack, and then you've got a set of uh, slack water down the, the west coast, which is usually quite slow and quite hard work. Then you head into the Menai Strait, which is a narrow channel where the water goes really fast again, and then there's houses to look at, scenery, there's the mountains, there's trees, there's a couple of bridges, and then there's another island, and then a, the east coast is quite boring and monotonous and becomes hard work. You're quite a long way offshore, and it just has everything together in, in one day, you know, you have some really exciting stretches, some hard work stretches, some challenging bits, some pretty bits, some easy bits. And I just like that about it. Um, but I think if I was to get away from Anglesey, I think that the, the crossing to Ireland is just so far. And you're crossing from one country to another, which always sort of adds an excitement to it, I suppose, doesn't it? And it's, so it's about 60 miles. And when I first set out on that, the first time you ever do it, there's so much unknown about it and so many doubts about it in, in yourself. Can I paddle this distance? And if I can paddle this distance, can I do it on my own? What's it feel like to be 30 miles offshore in a little kayak? 
there's only one way to find out if you can do it, if you can handle it and, and, and what it's like, and that's to go and do it. But it's quite a commitment to set out to do that. And, you know, I've got a, a swimming badge from when I was at school for 25 yards. Well, when I'm halfway to Ireland, 30 miles offshore, you know, little things like that creep into your head. Is this such a wise thing to do? Um, <laughs> so when I did that one, the first time I did that one, that was, I think you come home quite proud of that. It doesn't mean anything in the world. It doesn't change the world. It's purely for me and nobody else. Sure. But you have this sense of achievement. You've done something that is, I guess, truly elite. Not many people have done it. And you did it all yourself. You planned it. You prepared for it. You trained for it. In my case, I designed a boat. And you set off and, and it all worked. So you've done numerous uh, Irish sea crossings. Which, uh, which routes have you been your, your favorites? Ooh, um, I think I would say, to be honest, the ones to... The Isle of Man are quite nice because the Isle of Man is quite a pretty island and it sits not quite central but right out in the middle of the Irish Sea. And there's, from the UK point of view, there's three main routes to it. If you go from Scotland, it's about 15 miles, I think, 60 miles. If you go from England, from the Lake District, it's about 30 miles. And if you go from Wales, where I live on Anglesey, it's about 45 miles. So you can start off and learn your crossing trade as such on the shorter co- crossing from Scotland. And then when you, what you've learned from there, you take the next cross from England, which is longer and eventually you go from Wales and you can build up to it. And, and that's quite nice. The North Channel's a good one because the flow's quite fast and you've got to get your planning right, but it's quite short. It's only a three hour crossing and you push that really hard. On the North Channel crossing, I couldn't even get to the ferry terminal at the end. So I just stayed and came back in the afternoon <laughs> as well. <laughs> It was easier than carrying the boat to the ferry terminal somehow. <laughs> so coming back to Anglesey, um, so if you were to do a, a day trip at Anglesey, and I don't mean day trip by nine hours and some odd uh, time uh, going around the island, but just a, a short day out, what, where might you go? Um, it, it, there's so many places in Anglesey, and it, it, it's very de- weather dependent, it's Anglesey, and it depends what you want. If you want sort of nice scenery, big cliffs, quite a bit of exposed coastline, bird life and so on, you would go to Holy Island on the very west side of it and there's a, a route called the Stacks, South Stack and North Stack. And these are two little rocky outcrops just off the coast. They're very pretty, there's big cliffs there. You've got huge amounts of bird life in the summer and you've got some very fast flow there as well. You've got two tide races on there and if you include the one at Penrimar as well, which is a, word, a very famous sort of play spot as such, you've got three tide races to cope with as well. So that's probably one of the classic trips, but it's a very committing trip. You need to know the place a little bit to be able to paddle that. The place we go to a lot, we use ourselves, is the opposite side of the island. It's just a small island called Puffin Island. And Puffin Island's only about a kilometre offshore, half a mile offshore or so. And it's just a small island, about a mile long. It has a bird wildlife on it, it has a few puffins, it's a beautiful view of the mountains. It has a sound you cross to get there which moves so when the wind or the tide's against it you get a little bit of surfing there and so on. There's a little tide race at the end, the side of the island's really nice and calm, the side's usually a bit choppy. We do a little time trial around the place and you can do it all in an evening after work, in the summer evening. You can do the whole trip in less than two hours and we use that one a lot just because it's convenient and it's a really peaceful place, you know. So at, at last count, I see you have uh, a, a couple thousand trips on the Menai Straits. The Menai Straits. <laughs> so yeah, tell, the, us, tell us about that venue and uh, what keeps you returning. The Menai Straits, for me, my kind of paddling and my background is almost just 
the dream that I was looking for in all my paddling career. We live, but not by coincidence, a few minutes from the Menai Straits. <laughs> and the Menai Straits is actually the piece of water that separates Anglesey, the Isle of Anglesey, from the mainland of North Wales. And the Straits, depending on how you measure it, it's about 15 to 18 miles long. And it's tidal all the way through, and it narrows as you come from the southwest where the tide approaches from, and it narrows increasingly as it comes along, and that obviously speeds the water up. And down in the southwest coast corner where it comes in, it's probably about a mile, mile and a half wide. At the narrowest point in, in the section called the Swellies, it's a couple hundred meters wide, about 250 meters wide. And it's also quite shallow in those little rocky islands, rocky reefs and rocky outcrops. And as the fast water speeds through there and it goes through at about seven or eight knots, maybe a little bit more, you just get basically a set of tidal rapids. And from my point of view as a whitewater paddle, that's just a fantastic place. And because it's tidal, it happens every single day. There's no need to wait for the weather, for the wind. It's not seasonal or anything. Every single day you will have moving water and every single day you also have flat water. So from the point of view of training, it's excellent as well because you can choose your training sessions to match and you match them to the conditions to tailor for what you want from your training. So, you know, if I want to do time trials, I want flat water, calm water, I can choose that in a day. But if I want to do anything involving um, technique, white water technique, moving water technique, that's all there as well for me. And on top of all that, it's just a beautiful place as well. It's wildlife there. Um, it's relatively peaceful. It's easy to access to get there. Um, I think it's what they call an area of outstanding beauty in, in, in this part of the world. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> You've got everything just within a couple of, couple hours drive of wherever you are. So, Well, this is exactly what Anglesey is about, really, from the Seacaken point of view. That This is why we've got this strong community, this core community here, is that Anglesey does a lot of good things or has a lot of good things from the paddling point of view. It has the cliffs, it has the beaches, the fast water, the slack water, the sheltered water. The, ang the shape of the island gives you shelter from whichever way the wind's coming from. You'll find, be able to find shelter somewhere on the island. It's nothing, nothing on the island is, is the world's best. You know, there's better scenery in Scotland. There's better cliffs in other parts of the world. There's faster water in other parts of the world. But what you've got is you've got all of this, which is very, very good. And it's no more than 40 minutes drive from one end to the other. So you can have anything you want any day of the year. And it's just, that's, I guess, why that's drawn so many people to sort of set their paddling bases here, really. Among your records, you mentioned Isle of Man earlier. And I know yeah. that uh, you've got a... A standing record uh, around the Isle of Man as well. Tell us a little bit about the Isle of Man. Yeah, the Isle of Man, like I say, is situated pretty much central in the Irish Sea. It's sort of a bit of an enigma, really. It has its own government. It has its own laws there. But at the same time, I think, I might get this wrong, be careful what I say here now, I think it's a dependency of the UK. It has close links to the UK, yet it's self-governing at the same time. And... It's just a great place for sea kayakers. There's, there's quite a strong core of, of sea kayakers there, and there, it's, it's very similar in a way to Anglesey. It's slightly different shape, but it has the strong tides as well. It also has, it's roughly about the same size within a few miles difference. Um, so paddling around the Isle of Man is, is similar in a way to paddling around Anglesey. It has the same challenge. It has the distance. It has the fast water, the slack water, relatively, mm, careful what I say, boring parts of the coastline, but it's also some very scenic and exciting ones as well. So... But the tides are slightly different to Anglesey, so you can't just pick one plan up and take it over there and duplicate it. You have to go there and, and learn about the tides around there, learn about the start points and so on. There's, like I say, some very good paddlers over there. 
for me it was just a natural I've been there as a child we've visited as you know the family visits holidays and so on as a child and I just wanted to go back and as an adult and do it from my new perspective paddling these boats past around islands and yeah and I've been there quite a few times I like the Alabama it's a, a nice relaxing peaceful place with some good paddling so for you it's it sounds like it's definitely more than the speed it's about the strategy without a doubt yeah um, all right I'll give you an example here's one there's a an island in Scotland called Jura. Jura is about what, what, 60 miles around. It's a reasonably long island again. It's quite long and thin. But Jura separates two sounds. And at the top of the island of Jura, there's a very narrow channel that separates it from another island. And the water comes up these two sounds either side of Jura at different times, effectively. So you have one sound higher than the other. They roar through this little gap at the top of the island. That's called the Corrid Reckon. And that's famous as being a place where you don't go in a boat at the wrong part of the tide. It's very dangerous. There's a big pillar underneath that doesn't quite reach the surface. And this stone pillar crazies, creates huge whirlpools. And, and you don't want to be there in, in strong winds and the wrong tide. It's not going to end well. But the trouble is, this is the crux point of this island from a circumnavigation point of view. And each island has a crux point. But the Corrie of Reckon is a little bit different. It's not just getting through at the tide. It can be dangerous if you get there at the wrong time, or you're just not going to get around the island at all. And to add a little bit of excitement or a bit of added interest to that, there's no road access at, the end, at that end of the island. So to either start and finish there to get your timings right, you're going to have to camp there. Well, that's not ideal for record navigation. You're spending that on the canvas, which you're not going to be perhaps as rested, or you're carrying all the extra kit. So you've really got to start at the opposite end of the island. Well, that means now you've got to paddle four hours to get there. Four hours of paddling hard, and you've got to time it to get there with about a 20-minute window to get through. And you don't want to go right through the center of the window because then that means you lose time against the tide in other parts of the island. So you're really pushing it to the edge of the window. But really, you're paddling for four hours hard to get there within five or ten minutes of when you need to. And if you don't get it, you've blown the whole day. You've wasted everything. You're going to have to paddle home. Your, leg, your tail between your legs or so. <laughs> so it gives that added... I don't know, free son of excitement to it that it's not just a case of paddling around a bit harder than the other guy. You've got to get your timings right. You've got to get this strategy and this research right. If you don't, you've blown the whole lot. And I don't know, it's double or quit sort of game, I think. I quite like that somehow in a strange way. Uh, that's fascinating. I mean, some might say that you're missing the experience if you're blowing, blowing by it too fast. So what do you say to those comments? I don't go that fast. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not in a speedboat. The difference where I paddle in my, my tower and my fast boat, I paddle maybe five knots. Uh, somebody who's cruising maybe paddles three and a half knots. And believe me, I do these records. They're my thing. I enjoy them. But if you think about it, I haven't just turned up at Jura and gone for one trip. I've been there times to research that. And part of that research, just potter about and take in the scenery and just sit and wait. I actually paddle to a lot of these places because I can't get find the, the tidal information I need. I actually paddle out there and just sit there. I sit there with a little streamer of seaweed and I wait for that stream to change direction and I write some notes about it and head back. And at that point, I'm not paddling fast. I'm just sitting there daydreaming, watching life go by until the tide change. So anybody can, can paddle slowly. A few people can paddle. A few people can paddle fast. If I want to take in the scenery, I just go back the next day and paddle it slower. No problem. So those multiple times, each time it's a, it's a reconnaissance trip. Yes, yeah. Each each record attempt is a progress record, either 
for if it's not even to repeat that one, it's to a progress for a different one. So my shorter records are always progress trips for my longer records because there is a certain physicality you need and that that builds. You can't just jump in and do a 12-hour record attempt to get the optimum. You need to build up to that and you can't train on 12-hour stuff. Your body's not going to take it. So, so what you do is I do these shorter record attempts and over time they build and allow me to, to, to paddle the long distance and maintain the sort of intensity of that need. So you're effectively uh, learning every single part of that course, if you will. And uh, by learning every single part of the course, then you can put the whole together and, and set that record. Yeah, y- yes, you're trying to. You can, you know, you, you can set a record by, you don't have to go through the whole thing, but if it's like, say, if it's, as you mentioned on the Anglesey, I think you gain each time if you get it right. I've set records on what I said, my, my first successful attempt at Anglesey, but it took me five or six attempts to get it to, the, to what I think for me is as fast as I'm going to get. Hopefully, will one day prove for me. I think my Anglesey record is going to stand. I won't beat that again. It's an ongoing thing, isn't it? You know, I, the records are for me and for me alone. I'm very selfish about them. I really don't do them for other people to impress them. I don't really care what anyone thinks about it. You'll find when you come to the records, a small percentage of people tend to respect you for it and like you for it, but they're generally your mum and your best friends, and they would like you if you didn't get around anyway. <laughs> the majority of the world don't care at all. It's only paddling some guy in a stupid little canoe going around an island. They've got better things to do, and, and you know, well, <laughs> I understand that. You know, it's only canoeing. We have to remind ourselves that. And unfortunately, there is also a small group of people who take a dislike to you for doing these things because they may have built themselves up in reputation or whatever and you come along I, I use the records as a goal to get the best out of my paddling that's what I've always done from the very earliest days I've always wanted to improve and get the best out that I can and these records give me that focus and that tool to do it but no more than that I don't come home and sit and, and think I have to tell the world about my record I'm well aware that the majority of people don't care and, and why should they but I come home with a little bit of self-satisfaction that I put in the work, I put in the training, I put in the research, the planning, and it worked on the day. And only I did that. And I'm pleased that I got something right. And likewise, on the days when I get it wrong, it's entirely my fault, nobody else. So I go away and learn from that. And it's just this ongoing lifetime development or even experiment to see what I can do physically, mentally, learning the water and so on. It is truly a, a personal experience, and that's one of the beautiful things about kayaking is that it, it can be a, a, a life experience as well. I mean, a, a life sport. It's not something that's just a short term. Yeah, without a doubt. And it can also be, you know, kayaking and canoeing have so many different areas and disciplines in them, arguably more than perhaps most sports. And everybody's has a different opinion or everybody has a different outlook of how they want to do it. They're all just as valid as any other. And you can chase records of medals and races or you can just potter around the coastline and take seals. You can do whitewater rivers, you can jump off waterfalls, you can paddle flat water, you can coach people. So many different disciplines to it. And that's what's great about the community kayaking. And you don't have to be pigeonholed in any one of them. You can, you know, I've demonstrated to myself, I've, I've moved across multiple disciplines, enjoyed them all, and they've all contributed to each other as well. And that's the, that's the important thing. And, and maybe as well, Long term, on the whole, it's a sport that doesn't have a lot of impact. So we can tend to carry it on for a long time. But it tend to cause us huge, great um, injuries and wear and tear injuries that maybe other sports do. So you can still be, you know, reasonably up there in canoeing and kayaking. I'm well into your 30s, 40s. And I'm sneaking into my 50s, but we'll keep that one quiet. 
Whereas, <laughs> obviously, if you're a football player, a rugby player, a tennis player or something, then maybe your, your career may be shorter. So you mentioned that each, each small trip builds into the larger trips. And so if we kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about really large trips, you've done a couple of separate circumnavigations of the UK, one in either direction, both counterclockwise and clockwise. So tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, that is a big experience. Um, uh, <laughs> much different than the 10, 10 hour, you go to 10 hour to 80 days. <laughs> yeah, very much so. You know, when I was a racing man, my races were generally about 20 minutes, 10 to 20 minute races. So the longest races I probably did were 10, uh, sorry, were an hour long. So I had to learn when I came to the records to build that up to 10 or 12 hours. And that took quite a lot of doing, took time to learn. And then once you've done that, I've moved up at a different level, doing a different thing. I've, I'm picking off these records, enjoying myself, I'm learning. But there has to be something next, doesn't there? And and I just, some people have gone around the UK, from a, put it into context a little bit from the UK, CCAG's point of view, paddling a, a mainland circumnavigation of the UK, especially if you do it solo, is our equivalent of Everest. There's other trips out in the world that I'm sure is just as big, just as demanding. But this is quite a big trip. It's a 2,000-mile trip. It's um, going to take you roughly around 90 to 100 days, depending how hard you push it. Some do it a little longer, run a bit quicker. And on the way, you're going to experience a bit of everything. You're going to experience some very bad weather. You're going to experience some strong tides and some big conditions. You're going to experience some long crossings. Some We don't have huge wilderness in the UK. You're never going to be more than a day or two away from, from habitation as such. We don't have it in the wilderness that, for example, you, you have across your part of the world. But you will come across in quite remote stretches of coastline. You'll come across coastline with long cliffs. You'll also come across in the south of the country a lot of coastline that is completely built up which brings its own problems in a way that when you want to find someone to sleep at the end of the night, you may struggle on that. And it just has all of this all crammed together. And it's such a long and major undertaking. It's going to take you, like I say, three months to do. And that's a fair old commitment of a trip, really. And from my point of view, I just woke up one day. Other people, Some people say that, you know, it was always their dream to do it and so on. It wasn't for me. I just woke up one day and I literally thought, oh, well, I suppose that's the next on the list, really. It just popped into my head in the shower, and, <laughs> you know, and I spoke to my partner, my long-suffering girlfriend, and uh, I just sort of sat there and we were chatting at the, at the dinner table one evening. I said, I think they're going around the UK, and she just looked at me and said, yeah, I know. <laughs> she knew before I knew that I was going, really. So it was a bit predictable, I guess. <laughs> so you've, um, what, what was different about each trip? You, you chose to do it twice. Yeah, I, I did it twice. Um, I think before, predominantly you do it clockwise. It's The tides work in your favor majority of the time clockwise, just the way they run around the country. And our prevailing weather tends to come from the southwest. So the tides and the wind, except for the south coast, tend to work with each other. And that tends to flatten the conditions out. You will still get big conditions, believe me. But on the whole, it tends to give a bit better conditions. And after I went, a friend of mine, Stuart Leslie, with his brother and another lad, they went anti-clockwise and they were the first guys to do it. And this set a little bit of a debate going about whether there was a difference between one or the other direction. And I had a few theories that clockwise would be a different kettle of fish, as we would say, to the anti-clockwise. The anti-clockwise would be a little bit trickier. And there was quite a bit of debate about this. And 
to be honest, I thought a lot of people were talking a bit of rubbish about it. So I thought, right, well, there's only one way to find out what the answer is. Somebody's going to have to do it. And it didn't look like anybody else was going to do it. So I went and did it. And anti-clockwise was very different, yes, for a number of, of sort of technical reasons, really, which when they pointed out to you were quite obvious. But at the time, you didn't really think about them before you set out. So what was the biggest challenge on the uh, anti-clockwise route? One of the daily challenges was really that when you paddle on the clockwise one, you spend most of your time on the flood, on the incoming tide. So when you do a crossing across a bay or a harbour even, or a river mouth, you tend to be doing it on the flood. It's not always the case, but on the whole, for the majority of the country, you're doing it on the flood. And what that means is the water's running into that bay or into that harbour or into that estuary. So you're on the smoother side of it as such. You're on the upstream. The water's dropping away from you like a, on a river. If you're in a river in the pool above a rapid, you've got the calm. The rapids rough a little a bit. When you go anti-clockwise, for the majority of the country, you're running on the ebb. So now these rivers, these estuaries, these harbours are emptying out to where you are. And that means the flow's faster. And as we all know on the sea, all the waves always come towards the shore. You never have waves going away from the shore. When these waves hit this fast water coming out of these estuaries, the bays and whatever, it stacks it up. It's what we call wind over tide or basically swell over tide, chop over tide. And you'll get some quite dramatic conditions. And where the water's slow either side, those conditions won't be anywhere as, as near as noticeable. So you get very little warning it's coming. So when you paddle on the flood tide, on the clockwise one, the majority of the time you like I say, you've got the water's running into these estuaries, you tend to get smoother conditions. When you're on the ebb, you tend to get nasty conditions on these bays and that. And at times, it was quite dramatic and uh, unpleasant. And that became a daily thing, trying to work out what we've got to cross, how, what time we're going to do it, how can we mitigate it, and so on. And, and as a second point, really, that on the whole, from Scotland down on the west coast, where you're more exposed to the prevailing winds, you're on the ebb and the that means the weather is opposing the tide. So on the whole, the conditions are worse for you coming down the tides. Everything's magnified so because the wind and the tide work against each other. Whereas on, on the clockwise one, they tend to go in the same direction. It, it's not guaranteed. It's only as an average or as a probability sort of thing. But as a whole, I found the anti-clockwise route quite a bit more stressful than the clockwise route. And the clock, clockwise route was quite stressful at times, as it was anyway. <laughs> So there again is that strategy you were talking about earlier. Yeah, you wake up each day and you plan the day. From my point of view, I maybe overplan it by some people's sort of measure as such, but you wake up each day, you're looking to get the most out of the tide. Um, but each day has, just like the records I approached it, each day is a crux point, and it may be getting around a certain headland by a certain time or crossing a bay, like we say, at slack water rather than the, when the water's moving fast. But what you tend to find on a trip as big as this, especially in the UK, the thing that makes or breaks every single day is the weather. It's as simple as that, the weather. And you get up in the morning, try and work out what the weather is now, what it's going to be where you get to at the end of the day, which may be 30, 40, 50 miles away, possibly. So not only are you moving into a different weather system as such, or a different weather pattern, you're also different, moving into a weather pattern maybe eight hours further into the day. And we have very changeable weather in this part of the world. You've got to allow for the tide as well. And then you've got to work out how tired you are, fatigued you are. You're paddling a heavy boat. 
and are you paddling along a stretch of coastline that has get out points basically if it all goes wrong you need to get out are the beaches are there easy landings or is it all cliffs or rock where you can't get out and if you can't get out what are you going to do are you going to push on into these conditions can you tur turn and come back and and that's what you do day in day out and personally for me I found that pretty hard going especially the first trip which I did solo having to make this decision day in day out by the end of the trip I really didn't want to make decisions <laughs> You know, I, as an example, put it into a silly context, we come home here and your friends come and see you at the end of the trip and everybody wants to say hello and ask about it. And then they want to go paddling, want to go and do this and you want to meet your family and, and people just saying, can you do this? Do you want to come for a paddle? Do you want to work? Do you want to come and see us? Do you want to visit? And he can't answer the questions. He literally cannot answer them. Couldn't make a decision when I got back. It just wasn't possible. It sounds a bit mad saying that now, but at the time I'd used up, I think, all my decision-making capability and it probably got to the point where it was so stressful that it became unpleasant to try and make decisions and I almost had this block in my head to stop me making those decisions to the point where my partner would say well, you know would you like to eat this for, for, for dinner this evening and I was like I don't know I can't tell you just put it down and we'll see what happens <laughs> <laughs> so you um you mentioned solo just a minute ago um it seems like most circumnavigations uh seem to be solo. I should say a high number of circumnavigations seem to be solo. Why did you choose to go solo? Because I'm a hard person to get on with, <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, no, I, I did a few things in my early days, both in sort of better of walking and running and, and in my early days of paddling. And uh, I could become, shall we say, very focused on my object and I'll put in a lot of or my goal and I'll put a lot of work in for it. And I found later on that you need, it, it's difficult to find someone else who will put that same amount of effort in. I know a few people, I've got some very good friends who I would trust to join me in these sort of things. But on the whole, to find someone who puts in the same amount of work as you, has the same desires and, or approach to it as you have and want to get the same things from it. And then has to be able to get the same time to be able to do it, you know, time from life commitments, work, family and so on. Uh, it's difficult to get all that together and I just found in the early days it never really clicked for me and I, there's a few things that disappointed me and so on and I thought well there's only one person who's not going to let you down and if he does he deserves everything he gets and that's me so I just came around to the end that I would just set out and do it myself and, and that sort of worked for me and that's how it goes and it brings problems like on the UK trips on the, on the long circumnavigations you finish the end of the day, you've got a boat that may weigh 40, 50, maybe 60, 70 kilos, and you can't move it on your own. It's not possible. Uh, little things like admin, when you're away on these trips, you want to leave all your kit and you have to go and buy supplies from the shop. Well, you're leaving some very valuable kit and some very important kit, essential kit, you can't do without. And if that goes missing while you're away, it could really spoil your trip. It could almost bring it to a halt. And little things like that are a lot more easy if there's if there's if you've got a team or at least if there's two of you than doing it on your own but i also look at i think we're probably going to talk later about the website I keep an eye on all these records and stuff I, I find them very interesting to watch other people do them and i learn from watching other people do them. and it is interesting when you see teams set out and you can see some teams that gel very well and you know they're going to be successful or they're going to have the best shot of being successful you know nothing's guaranteed in this game but you also see others and you can see that they have a different agenda and you can see them starting to diverge. 
and these trips are very very stressful you're under a lot of pressure you're going to put up with a lot of fatigue a lot of pain a lot of stress a lot of monotony you're going to be scared out of your wits at times and that's going to put a lot of stress on the best of relationships and if you find that these guys have different genders and these girls and they're sort of diverging a little bit that stress is going to feed into that crack and pull them apart and you do see that I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think rec- if we look at, sorry, if we look at the history of it, people have been very successful in going around as a team. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, and some of the fastest times have been done by a, t- a team. But at the same time, some of the fastest times and most successful trips have been done solo as well. So neither of them is right or wrong. It's just down to the approach of the individuals and what works for some doesn't necessarily work for others. Yeah, sometimes simplifying that process of, of taking extra people out of the mix, I mean, it does simplify the process. Without a doubt. There's less things to go wrong. I, you know, I, you never know on these things how everybody's going to react under the stress. And it doesn't matter how strong these people are, how good they are as a paddler, how strong they are physically. Sometimes these things can just become too much for them. And you can have people you really think you can depend on. And then one day you realize you don't really know them and suddenly it all falls apart. And at the same time, you have that person who you never really had much faith in. Turns out to be the star, the hero, who can hold it all together. And you don't really know until you get into this pressure cooker of these sort of things, how it's going to work. And from my point of view, I don't really want to get halfway around and find out how I didn't really know people. So I just went with myself because I figured I'd, I'd live with this guy for, you know, at the time, 40 odd years. If I didn't know him by now, it was getting a bit late. So what recommendations might you have for somebody who has their sights set on a circumnavigation? A circumnavigation, right. So uh, you've got to decide whether you want to do it, how hard you want to do it, because you don't have to do a circumnavigation record. You can just go out and do it. Are we talking UK circumnavigation here or an island? I guess just any, yeah, both. (laughs) A, a A large objective, I guess I'll say. A large objective. It could be a circumnavigation, a large crossing, just something that's really significant. I think what I would say, like I say, I I love to watch other people do them because I can learn so much from how they approach things. And not so much that I'm going to copy what they've done, but I can see if they do something different to me, I want to know, have they done something better than I've done? Have I got something that can be improved on? I like to watch that from people. And what I see quite a bit from people, I think, is they tend to rush into these things a little bit too quickly. And sometimes that tends to work, but other times it doesn't. And I think if you go into these things, you really should go in with everything stacked in your favor. So for me, I get as fit as I physically need to be to do the distance, and that will take as long as it takes. And I work on, when I'm training for these things, I work on a two-year cycle. I, you know, I don't mess about with this. But the first year, I probably won't even know what the main goal is for the following year, but I just know I need to get fitter, I need to do a certain distance, and I will do what I call these little progress goals, these mini circumnavs, these mini challenges on the way. And then at the end of the first year, I will then be sort of cementing what I'm going to do for the second year. And at that point, then I decide how far I need to be able to paddle. So for example, Anglesey, I need to be able to maintain 10 hours fairly hard. I don't have to go max for that 10 hours. It's the weather and, and the tides that will make the difference. I just need to maintain a plan. So get yourself to a fitness where you can paddle the distance and comfortably paddle that distance. You then need to make sure you've got the skills. And these are the safety skills, basically. You must be able to self-rescue or roll. You must be able to deal with the conditions. You must be able to raise the alarm, PLBs, lifeboats, flares. You need to be able to know all of that. You need to know the weather and the conditions and how those two interact. So you need to learn how the wind, wind and the tide, once they meet, 
against each other will make the conditions much worse when they're together and much much smoother. And what sort of geographical conditions or sorry, ge geographical topographical areas will affect that as well? You need to understand all of that. After that, it's basically understanding if you're in this part of the world, tides and working out when the tides work in your favour, and that's not really that hard, you know, you can get a little atlas and it shows you an arrow pointing from left to right. Well, if you're paddling that way, it's going with you. Don't paddle against the arrow, simple as that. And this all sounds perhaps a little over the top, but you can start very simple. And I started literally paddling out to an island off the top of Anglesey called the Skerries. It's a couple of miles offshore. And that was my first island. And then I've built it up from there and you slowly build it. And you may have this long-term goal to do something. But the ones on the way are just as valuable, just as exciting and just as interesting. You learn so much from them. So see them for what they are. Don't see them as a, a, a fallback or as a, a cheap op option or something. See them as being useful, but also being exciting in their own right and build up to what you need to do. So you mentioned uh, that a couple of times you've mentioned that you enjoy watching others set records uh, and, and kind of seeing what they can accomplish. And so you maintain performanceckayak.co.uk. Tell us a little bit about that and your motivation for starting it and keeping it going. Yeah, yeah the website's a little bit of a, takes a lot of my time. We set out a long time ago, when we set out with these records, I obviously wanted to know what people were done. What was the time I was aiming for? So, and it came when I was going to do the crossing to the Isle of Man and I was asking around, you know, where's the place to go from and, and where do I start and how long is it going to take, blah, blah, blah. And lots of people said, oh, such and such has done it, go and ask them. And I went to ask them, no, I've never done it. And then, but he's done it, so I'm going to ask them, no, she's done it. And you found, eventually, you asked all these people and there was a lot of hearsay, but nobody really knew what the details were. And I thought, right, well, one, it's useful from the, any, the, the sort of potential record attempter as such to know what they're aiming for but also there's a lot of good paddling out there that's just disappearing into history without being recorded so i decided that perhaps we should put it onto the this uh, website i decided and predominantly in the first areas it was just for me i just kept the records and i found it quite interesting just to look through the names the numbers and so on other people started to have a look at it and then other people started to say can i put mine on and i said yes and it just grew from there and uh, now we hold a number of records, circumnavs and crossings for across around the whole of the UK. We have some challenges as well. We have a, what we call a distance challenge, where basically you pick your piece of water wherever it may be, and you paddle as far as you can in an hour, or three hours, or five hours, and then we total it all up. And that can be done anywhere in the world. You don't have to do it in the UK. You don't have to have a special piece of water. You just do whatever you want to do it on, send it in. Um, lately, we've just, this year, we've just launched a new one, COVID here, the, the lockdowns causes a few problems in, in, for our sea kayaking. So we've sort of tried to localize it a bit for people a bit more, and we've, we've gone for an islands challenge now. So if you've got an island in, near you, and there's hundreds, literally, I think about 800 or something in the UK, I don't know. And let's just tick them all off. Let's see how many we can do before the end of the year, you know, in this terrible year of ours. Let's just see what we can do. So we've got these, everything from, these fast performance records, these major expeditions like the, the UK trip, down to things as simple as just paddling the island at the bottom of your garden as such if you've got one, you know. And we're hoping that we can drag people in from all sorts of corners and all sorts of areas and just... It's not about the records. That's what it keeps getting talked about. It's really just getting people to approach paddling, look at the paddling from slightly different. I never thought about paddling around the island. Let's go and have a look. And once you've done it, you can send it in and put your name up if you want. But it's just made you think about at least going out there and doing it. 
you know, there's, there's a lot of good paddlers out there and they've never thought about maybe trying some of these circumnavs in one day. Well, give it a try. See what the other guys have done. Chase them. And you will learn so much about your own paddling, your own fitness, your own mental capabilities, and also research the tides and so on. And you will learn more about your paddling. I will guarantee it. You'll learn more about your paddling and doing one, one circumnavigation record attempt than you would have done in years of just general paddling, should I say. That'll upset people, I know, but I've said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've had a few previous guests who've referenced the site, and, and it certainly is a wealth of information. And, uh, and it's for me, I know it's been fascinating just to review, just to look at the site and, and think about the different places and just, just dream. Yeah, I think, the, like I said, this year we've launched this, this thing called what we're calling the Islands Project, the Islands Challenge, just to go out and paddle some of these UK islands. And people are sending them in. And we're looking at them and putting them up on our map and saying, wow, we've never been there before. That looks fantastic. Let's give it a go. And we've started almost paddling, virtual paddling, vicarious paddling from seeing what other people are doing in little parts of Scotland, down in the Thames Estuary. Um, we've got some, we haven't got any in Wales, unfortunately. We've got a few in England. We've even got some just on the Thames inland. And you're looking at these places and you think, I never even knew that was there. And you're watching what people are doing. You're thinking, do you know what? That's going to go on our list next summer. Let's go and give that a go and just see what it looks like. Wonderful. So uh, kind of a loaded question here. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Tell us about your favorite boat. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that is a loaded question. I've got a few favorite boats, and you probably wouldn't get the answer you're, you're hinting at. But, um, yes, um, part of, once again, I bring back to Anglesey. You know, you obviously gathered by now, and Anglesey's been a big part of my paddling life, and it's, it's developed my life, and pushed my life in so many different, or certain directions. When I set out on this record chasing Lark, um, I wanted to go faster and I knew I could go a little bit faster personally, physically. The tides were the thing that really made the biggest difference. But the boat I was paddling at the time, I felt had limitations. And coming from a background of what was whitewater racing, descent racing, I knew how to make a boat go fast through moving water, through splashy water, rough water. And I also knew what was needed in a boat to do that in the technical side of the boat. And the sea kayak I was paddling at the time, I didn't think was up to that. So I looked around, I tried various designs around the country and some designs from overseas, but I'm quite fussy when it comes to boats and not one of them ever really clicked. And at the time I was just getting some repairs done with a company in, in Hollyhead called Rockpool Kayaks, we got chatting to them and I ended up doing a little bit of work for them, designing some race boats and things like that. And then the man in charge, Mike Webb said one day, well, if you want a faster boat for your record around Anglesey, let, why don't we design one? Let's do one. If you think you can do it, let's do it. And I'll tell you how to actually manufacture a boat, the shapes you need to, to get it in and out of a mold, technical side of things. You bring your sort of knowledge from, from the paddling side of things and let's get a boat together. And, and that's what we did. And we, I designed the Rockpool Taran. Mike builds them still to this day in North Wales. And all of the records I helped hold have all been done in a Taran. The Taran's been very successful now. It's gone around the UK with numerous paddlers in the last few years. And I'm quite pleased to see it, it disappears off to foreign lands. And every now and then I see a photograph of it in the snows of Norway or the, the sunshine of some southern hemisphere country. And yeah, yeah, that's quite a nice feeling. Well, a friend of mine here in the Chicago area has a Terran. So It's a good boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's a boat. It was designed really... Like I say, originally just to get around the island as this record, and then we, we found later it, it was useful in so many different areas. But what it's designed to do is really to get you around the island 
in a reasonably fast time. It's not the fastest of boats. There are faster boats out there. But it, it reasonably fast in, in choppy conditions, but usable enough that you can stop for admin. So basically, you can take a pee in it, you can take a photograph in it, you can feed yourself in it, and in rough conditions, you feel reasonably home at home in it, and it will get you back home one piece. And those are basically the criteria we had for it, really. Yeah, what are some of those unique design features that make it different? Ah, I can't give, tell you all uh, of that, really. <laughs> yeah, without giving um, away trade secrets. <laughs> yeah, uh, if you look at it, and if, you, if, if you're if you a sort of person who knows anything or has had any background in, in what we call wild water racing over here, white water racing, some parts of the world call it descent racing, you will see straight away that the bow has come virtually from a white water racing boat. It's designed to have a high volume bow, so it stays above the water and go, cuts through or tries to stay over the smaller chop waves rather than pushing through them like a, like a submarine. It keeps a very dry deck. And basically in the racing world, the dry decks are faster boat. If you have a wet deck, you've got a slow boat. It's also built around a rudder. Right from the start, it was built with a rudder. And some parts of the world, that won't be a surprise at all. In the UK, that was a bit of a no-no. Rudders were, were not seen as being the dumb thing for sea kayaking at all when we set out with that. But what a rudder allows you to do, if it's a correctly adjusted rudder, and a good rudder, quality rudder, is that it allows you to put a lot of your, or become a lot more efficient. You're putting your effort into going forward and controlling the boat and, and driving the boat forward rather than countering the boat and countering the weather and so on. So the rudder and the bow are very important. It's also got a good cross section, which is of a certain shape, which I won't go into too much detail of, but basically it allows the waves from your side to have limited effect or very little effect on the boat. So some boats get thrown about a lot in, in a sea that's coming from the from the beam, and that makes it quite uncomfortable, especially if you're paddling like a lot of the UK and this part of the world, along cliffs and so on, and you've got waves coming from both sides. You're not, one, be able to make the boat go fast, but two, you may not feel comfortable and happy there. So there's quite a lot of work into making a nice cross-section that allows the boat to float, to handle well, handle like a kayak should, but at the same time, doesn't get thrown about as much in the, the side uh, waves as such as beam conditions. So I won't ask you to give away any any trade secrets. We'll just uh, kind of leave it at go to your le- uh, local retailer and, and try one out and see what you like. Yeah, I have <laughs> to say, from my point of view, it's a good boat. I've obviously got a vested interest in it, but it isn't the world's perfect boat. It isn't for everybody. If you're going to buy a new boat, you must must go and try them. And you must go with your heart to some extent to choose the boat that feels right for you, irrespective of my ties to the Taran or whatever. If you pick up another boat and you decide that's the one for you, go and buy it because you're going to be in it a long time. You're going to have numb legs, sore bum. You're going to get wet, cold and stressed in it some days. So make sure it's, it feels as, as close to a good friend as it possibly can be, whatever design that may be. Certainly. So aside from the boat, uh, what's some of your other favorite, favorite kit? Favorite kit? I have a very old set of wing paddles now from Legend in New Zealand, which they're getting so old that I've worn through the, the, the grip on them now. And they just take me through so much, and they've been such a good set of blades, and I, I really like them. I've got a very nice Kokotat dry suit, I know a lot of people have, and I keep that for special occasions. And when I put that on, life's getting a bit tricky out there, you know, and it always brings a little bit of comfort to me. I think probably the most important thing I've probably got is the seat I put in the Tarrant. I designed a seat, I fitted my own seat, and it fits my bum perfectly. <laughs> so I can sit in this, this boat for 10, 12, 14 hours, whatever it is at the time. I think I've done a record that was 19 hours somewhere around Mullison. 
I couldn't have done that without the sea. So we look at all these fancy boats, our fancy clothing, our paddles, but probably the, one of the most mundane things, but the thing that makes the biggest difference to your long paddling day is having a seat that fits you and your shape. Maybe not the answer you're expecting, but that's probably what I would, if I had to take something with me, I'd probably take my seat. <laughs> I think anybody who's spent a long time in a boat could certainly appreciate and understand that. Yes, I would agree. Oh. So, John, how could listeners reach you if they've got more questions? If you want to get a hold of me, obviously the, the Performance Sea Kayak website is probably the easiest way to find me. If you put that into any of the search engines, it should come up. I'm on, uh, what is it, Facebook and Performance Sea Kayak again on Facebook. And those are probably the easiest ways. I'm happy oh. to take questions and offer advice if you want them, encouragement. But, uh, yeah, I'm always there. All right. Well, thank you very much. I will certainly put links to the uh, in the show notes to Performance Sea Kayak. And uh, have people an opportunity to take a look at that as well and see the challenges and, and all the other data that's out there and have them have the opportunity to dream as well. That's what it's all about. Chase your dreams and uh, try your best to, to achieve them, I guess. Excellent. So, John, one final question that I have that I, that I ask all of our guests here, and that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? I was a little pre-warned on this, obviously, and I had to think about this one. There's so many good people out there that could tell us such a good tale. And one man I have a lot of respect for is a man called Mick O'Mara from Ireland. And Mick holds the fastest record from going around Ireland, an impressive record. He also holds the fastest team records, in fact, the fastest outright records for crossing the Irish Sea with a friend of his called Brian Fanning. But Mick's also, more than that, he's raced the Liffey Descent and, and has wins in that. That's a major international race. And the Devizes to Westminster, which is probably our biggest race in the UK. So he's got a heck of a background. The man knows how to train. He knows how to make a boat run. And he just has so many good tales as well. So I, I would probably choose Mick. But I think if I can be sneaky here and go for two, I would sure. also like to hear from Nigel Dennis in, in North Wales. And Nigel will, will be known to many of your, your, list, your listeners to the podcast here that Nigel was one of the, I think, the first guy to paddle around the UK with a man called uh, Paul Caffin. But since then, Nigel's also run a, a worldwide a business that sells boats worldwide. It was NDK, now it's CKK, and he's the designer of the Explorer and the Romany and so on. Nigel's done expeditions all, you know, various parts of the world, Cape Horn and all sorts of places. He's coached people. He runs a symposium here that travel from all over to, to take part in. So whereas Mick comes from more my sort of world, and I would love to hear his tales and his talk on training and, and, and that approach, I think from the point of view as a UK CKK paddler, Nigel's probably been the, the core and has the greatest influence on sea kayak paddling in this part of the world of anybody else. So that would be interesting to hear from him as well. Well, thank you very much for the uh, for the leads there, and I uh, will certainly look forward to talking to them. Just as I've I've really enjoyed the opportunity to speak with you as well. Uh, learning, you know, hearing from you and hearing your strategy and and all the all the thought process that goes into the paddling that you do and uh, the records and the stories has just been fantastic. And again, I really appreciate your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. I've enjoyed myself. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, 
drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. I really hope you enjoyed learning about the strategy of speed from John Willisey. It's fascinating to me, and I hope it was for you too. So it's certainly more involved than just paddling quickly. And John brings quite a history from whitewater, slalom, wild water, sea kayaking, and more. And his work maintaining the performancesekayak.co.uk is a great service to the community. So thank you, John, for your effort. The next episode is going to feature another paddling couple, also from the UK. And we're going to be talking with Fee and James Corfee about their adventures in New Zealand and going around Cape Horn. This one certainly promises to be a lot of fun. Thanks as always for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.